Amen. This is the word of God. Amen. Amen. May God write it on our hearts. Advent. What is Advent? It comes from the Latin word for coming, which is a translation of the Greek word parousia, which means presence, arrival, or official visit. Um, Historically, in the church, it has been a season, Advent has been a season, where gathered believers of local churches preached and believed together that Christ would come again. It's morphed. It's fallen on hard times. Advent. And rightly so, we as Baptists are very skeptical of liturgical calendars and events that follow them or really anything that proceeds from the medieval traditions of Roman papacy. We're just leery of it for good reason. But we can protest salvation by works and still be helped in this season as a church to remember Christ's advent together. We can do both at the same time. This is a season to remember the grace of God. It's a season. Advent is a season to anticipate what being recipients of that grace means for our future. Advent has taken on three historical understandings at the same time among faithful believers. So faithful believers who think about this idea of presence, God's presence, his arrival, his official visiting, has taken on three understandings. The first is we remember Christ who came to Bethlehem. We remember baby Jesus. Secondly, we remember Christ who has come to reign as Lord in our hearts. Advent, he's come to reign in our hearts and in the church. And then finally, a third understanding is we anticipate Christ. We wait for the Christ who will come again to raise up all who believe in him on the last day to eternal life. This morning, we start a six-week sermon series in Advent through the birth narratives in Luke's gospel. We do that in anticipation of December 25th's celebration of Christ's birth, Christmas. We do it in anticipation of Christmas. This morning's sermon is titled, The Last Prophet, and it is the first of three sermons about the man, John the Baptist. This morning's sermon answers this question, who was John the Baptist? Who was he? We're going to see three clear truths in the text that you just heard read this morning concerning the last prophet, concerning John the Baptist. Three truths for us, the church, to believe together about John the Baptist. The first is in verses one through four. John's history is our history. John's history is our history. Secondly, we'll see that John's parents' problem is our problem. And then finally, John's calling, we'll see, is our hope. Let's talk about the first thing, John's history. John's history is our history. In verses 1 through 4, we have the introduction of Luke's gospel. And it is chopped full of important and helpful explanations as to why this book was written in the first place, why we have these narrative stories of Christ's birth and then the gospel of Christ's life. Luke was 
one of the closest companions of the Apostle Paul. And Luke alone was with Paul at the end of Paul's life when others had abandoned him in Rome. Luke, who writes this, was a physician of sorts during that time. It was his occupation. His personality must have been a bit of a skeptical person in all likelihood, at least skeptical of anything that he couldn't verify himself. He's meticulous. Luke is and uh, was a devoted disciple of Christ. Luke did not meet Christ personally. He was not an apostle in that sense, but he was likely converted early on in the initial efforts of the church. Maybe even Paul himself led him to Christ. We don't know. He writes to Theophilus, you heard, in these first verses. Theophilus means, his name means, friend of God. And could really be one of three things. We don't have records of him, but we think he could be a powerful leader, maybe, who believed. Maybe he's a Greek non-believer that Luke is trying to evangelize. Or maybe Luke has just picked a term and picked a name, the friend of God, to write this to all friends of God who would pick this up and read it. What you're holding when you are touching this book, Luke, uh, Luke's gospel, you're holding part one of a two-part book. Luke alone writes a sequel to his gospel. It's called the book of Acts, the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Thus, when we read Luke in the New Testament, we read more, he contributed more to the New Testament than any other author. 27% of the New Testament's words are his words in the two books written there. We see in these first verses that he addresses his gospel to Theophilus with a main purpose. Look in verse 4. It's that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. What does that mean? It means he writes to give him assurance. Assurance of the past, of a right history. We start our first point here with Luke's introduction to, to show us that history matters. John the Baptist stands in line, not just with any history, but with the history of all histories that you can study. The history of God Almighty himself. God the author of the scriptures. This is the history of the creator of the world, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, the God of the Exodus, the God of the promised land, the promised people of God, the God of, and who is the lover of all nations and ethnos, all peoples, the God of the major and minor prophets, the God of the last prophet raised up before the Messiah, John the Baptist, the Lord of all. Luke records John's history starting in verse 5 with the introduction of his parents. But in verses 1 through 4, you see why that history matters. You can make sense of Advent when you think of verses 1 through 4. Here's why. It matters because God speaks. It's God speaks. Our God speaks. It matters because the message of history is one that can stick with you and change you. And if you're going to believe that, you have to see the authority of God's word. God is the one authoring history before us. He's writing it now, and he is in charge of eternity. So if you hold this in a trustworthy fashion, these first four, four, four verses tell us John's history because they can be ours. It's a history of the word. That's John's history. 
you know, when he, when he mentions the many others in verse 1, he's talking about the oral tradition and likely Mark's gospel, possibly Matthew's gospel as well that have been written. Luke does not dismiss other authorities to promote himself, but does the opposite by encouraging Theophilus to trust these sources as well. One thing about the doctrine of the Bible, which is why when we talk about history, we talk about the Bible, the doctrine of inspiration. One thing that you and I believe uh, in our church here this morning is we believe that men who wrote the scriptures were not robots. In other words, they, they did not just pick up their quill and then put it on the papyrus and God moved it without their understanding or knowing what was happening. That's not what we believe about inspiration. They were not in some trance when writing the Bible or receiving uh, the truth, and then they came back to themselves later. We don't believe that. Instead, we believe that men carried along by the Holy Spirit write Scripture, and it becomes preserved in a certain context. It has a certain purpose, and it includes the person writing it even, their personality, who they were before Christ, etc., right? We see this about the scriptures in 2 Peter 1. It says, we have the prophetic word and we have it more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention to it as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's why I use that phrase. It's actually the Bible saying, this is how it comes to us. Luke records these words for the same purpose that all of the Bible shares, to glorify God and to present God's word to us clearly, to show us the history of redemption, to invite us to believe. John's story that you will see over the next three weeks, and then Christ's coming the following three weeks, is a history, but it's a history we believe. Trust these ancient words in this Advent, this parousia, this season that you're in, okay? Open up over the next six weeks as a family, with your friends, with your neighbor. Speak boldly that this season matters because, not because of some arbitrary commercialized Christmas idea or tradition that you do, Sure, you'll do them. Sure, they'll be fun. But Christmas is so much more than that for us because of this history, this rich promise. John's history is our history because we believe the same scriptures that he fulfilled and believed with his life. It's the same for Jesus. As Ruth reminded us last year, think about that, a year ago, we were trying to say what Ruth said. You know, Ruth a year ago was this pagan convert to Christianity, just like you and I are. She's not of God's people, the Jews. She's a Gentile, and yet she's brought in, and she looks God's people, Naomi, in the face. And she says last year, if you remember when we studied it together, she says this about God and his people. Where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, that's where I'm going to live. I'm going to lodge there. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. By faith, me and you this morning say the same thing in this season of Advent. John's history is my history. Jesus' history becomes my history. His people 
are my people. His word is my word. His God is my God. John's history is our history, point number one. Number two, picking up in verse five. That context, John's parents' problem is our problem. That's verses five through 15. Okay, the second thing we need to realize is that all histories deal with problems, okay? They deal with the problems that are present during the time that they're written. That is not because they are necessarily worse than our own. These problems they face are not necessarily worse than our problems. They're not necessarily better. They're not more novel. But instead, we know that they're similar to our own. Humanity, since the fall into sin, faces a repackaged evil of rebellion against God throughout all time. It's repackaged a million ways with one intent, to stop the advancement of God's revealed word. But the truth of the scriptures in all history is it cannot be stopped. It can only be stifled for a moment. And that's what we see happening in verses 5 through 15. It deals with uh, us as an introduction to John the Baptist. You know, who is John the Baptist? He's He's from this history that we've just talked about, and it's our history. It's this rich tradition of the scriptures. And what is his context? Well, he grew up in a season where there were problems. So this point has two subpoints to hang your hat on. First, let's talk about the problem being identified. In verses 5 through 10, the problem is identified. And then in 11 through 15, we'll see that the problem gets solved. Problem identified. Verse 5, it said, In the days of Herod, look at it again, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the divisions of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So we get an introduction to the story. This is a narrative. One commentator really helps us by summarizing that why we start here with John the Baptist is the narrative's major goal is to give you an overview of God's plan by showing you the relationship of Jesus to John the Baptist. So that's why over these next six weeks, we'll go John the Baptist and then we'll go Jesus. So we'll do that where we can't. We'll chop the Bible up like it's not really doing, but we're doing that to really show this overall purpose. Let's compare. Let's see this. So the big idea is, of course, God's redemption through Jesus. But don't lose uh, the big picture when you go through this. But don't neglect the context either. Luke gives it here. He says Herod. You notice that. This is the Herod who uh, Herod the Great, who reigned before and right after Christ, or at the beginning, excuse me, of Christ's life from 40 B.C. to 4 B.C. And a simple reference to the Bible dictionary will tell you, you know, these years of Herod's rule were a, were a time of turmoil for God's people, for the Jewish people. Despite his building achievements that he did, he rebuilt the Jerusalem temple. Um, he did not win the loyalty of the Jews as one who was ruling over them. Here's why. He had many problems. Herod had his own brother-in-law executed. Later in his life, he had his own wife and her mother and her two sons killed. Herod just five days before his own death, had his oldest son, Antipater, put to death as well, all out of paranoia and out of fear for losing his kingdom. Okay? He did keep the peace among a people who were hard to rule. God's people were hard to rule. And he kept peace among them. But to be sure, he was a cruel and merciless man. He, he, he was generous at times. He fed them uh, from his own funds during a time of famine. And yet this is also the same man who was the king that ordered the execution of all the male babies in Bethlehem in Matthew 2. Same guy. 
So when it says, in the days that you read there, it has some weight to it for every Jewish person. But it didn't just have it generally. It has it for these two people. Because the turmoil and the difficulty that we enter into when we enter into the home and the life of Zechariah and Elizabeth is that context where they're so uncertain of the days around them, but also we see they're old and they're barren. Who are these people? Zechariah is this, uh, his name means Yahweh remembers, God remembers. But Luke doesn't tell us that. He keeps going. Though we know that has great significance. He is from this priest line. In 1 Chronicles 24, you can find Abijah there, and you know that he's a rightful priest of Israel. Elizabeth is a daughter from the priestly line of Aaron, which is fitting because they had to marry within, uh, within, you know, priests had to marry within the same line in that regard. And, uh, you know, her name means God is my good fortune. God has sworn an oath to me. And who are these two? John's mom and dad. They're both righteous before God, verse 6 says. They're blameless, walking in God's commands, keeping God's statutes. They were both righteous. Despite how difficult their season around them, they loved God. <laughs> they loved serving God. But these are seriously grievous days for them. They're hard days. It's extremely hard for them in this season. It's a major low for the people of God. At this time, any hope uh, for them to have an established rule, a nation that like they once had, a monarchy and a kingdom, it has vanished. And the recently appointed Roman puppet king, Herod, that we're talking about, he's not making things easier. And if that wasn't enough, despite their present difficulties and their remaining steadfast in it, it says in verse 7, they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they're both advanced in years. So for them, it's worse because this, could, this is basically a death sentence in their day. Having no one in that day to help you when you're older and unable to take care of yourself, uh, children were supposed to do that. It means that you could finish some of your last days as a beggar. We don't know how old they are, but we assume it's old enough for us to feel the weight in this narrative that, that it's impossible for them to have children at this point, And that means their problems will persist. There's no welfare state to help them. There's no Social Security Act to help them retire. And this must be present in their minds all the time. And yet, they continue in faithfulness, right? Look at 8 through 10. It says, Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Zechariah is in the midst of his biannual temple ministry, and this is in Jerusalem. Their home is actually in Judea, or Judah, and they're in Jerusalem, however. Approximately at this time, there's about 18,000 priests that serve. Okay, think about that number. That's a lot. And, in, and when it says offering the incense, Zechariah is performing the greatest ministry of his entire priestly career at this moment. One commentator cites the Mishnah and shows that, you know, a priest could not offer incense like this more than once in his entire lifetime. Some never even received the privilege because by the time they, they, they got too old to be able to do anything, there was so many priests doing this morning and evening that it would be 45, 50 years even, and they're no longer a priest. Some didn't even get to do this. 
Thus, the time when Zechariah offered the incense, this is the most important moment in his entire life. Think about it like this, church. In the midst of a difficult season of life, he gets to do the most important thing of his entire life. I hope he doesn't miss it, right? You hope he doesn't miss it. How easy it is to get caught up in circumstances and miss really important things. Problems have a habit of of doing that to us. We focus on the problems and we don't realize that we have something huge in front of us that God's doing. But they seem to get it and he's serving. Notice it says, entered the temple of the Lord. He's literally entering the holy place. He's entering the holy place. And this is important in the text to point out. Exodus 28, 35, it talks about the clothes that a priest would wear when he would go into the holy place as having bells on them. They had bells on, that, on their outfit. And here's why. Exodus 28, 35 says, its sound, the sound of the bells, shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord and when he comes out so that he does not die. Now, this is not the most holy place where the high priest of the, uh, of the time would enter once a year. But this place, the holy place where Aaron or where Zech- uh, Zechariah is going, it bumps up against the most holy place. And therefore, it is serious that someone going in must be blameless. They must be ceremonially clean. They need to be full of integrity when they enter the space or their very life could be at stake. Think about that as you balance barrenness and feeling as though God has forsaken you with no children and in a land where you're struggling to believe the promises, but yet you're doing it as faithfully as you can, but you know this puppet king is just causing more problems for God's people. And where's the Messiah? And he has to put all of that aside and not have doubt as he goes in in integrity. It says the people are praying outside. It's worth noting. We say things in our discipleship at this church like, you know, God in his sovereignty limits his activity to the prayers of his people. That's a belief that historically this kept happening. It's likely in the evening time because there's enough people there to make a big crowd that he's going in. And every day people would come and pray and believe that God's presence is beyond the curtain and the veil on the mercy seat. And the incense offered in the holy place in this moment is is hearkening them back to believe the history and to believe that God will show up. Surely he'll show up. But we also worry because if he does show up and his fire were to break forth, he would consume all of us. And so there's this somberness, right? Heavy moment for God's people. A heavy moment for a man who's heaved with life's difficulties. This heaviness is the problem. Sin, it's present. And yet the problem gets solved, right? Look at verse 11 through 12. It's in that moment that there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense, and Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. So all of a sudden, an angel appears. Now, quick note for you to remember angels in your Bible forever, I hope. Kids, I think you'll like this. A lot of times when people think of angels in our culture, they think of babies, they think of bows, and they think of cute little bottoms, right? And I'm telling you right now, you need to get rid of babies, bows, and cute bottoms. Because no, 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 that is not what the Bible calls an angel. Instead, you need to think, pee your pants, pray, and pass out. How's that for an alliteration? 
Here's why. Because that's what happens when angels show up in the Bible pretty much every time. People are struck with fear. People pass out. People fall on their faces. People pray. And we learn later, and we'll see next week, that this is Gabriel, who stands in the very presence of God. So the impact of his own holiness is heavy in this moment. Zechariah, rightly so, should be terrified. Why is this mighty archangel here? Is it to kill him? He could. His bells on his clothes testify that he probably should. There should be no more jingling in there as the incense is put before it, God and as the burnt offering that has been offered is then brought in with its ashes. It should be a silent thing if we're considering his sin. So surely he thinks this. This is how the problem is solved, a near-death experience? <laughs> well, yes and no. John is not destroyed, though he should be. But in fact, it's the, quite the opposite, isn't it? The angel comes with great news for his problems. He comes with a solution. Look at verse 13. The angel said to him, don't be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. Call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. He will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. Now, I go all the way to that first half of verse 15 there, because I want you to stop and think about that womb. Do you remember? Remember, this womb is barren and has been for a long time. How can it be that this will happen? Well, interestingly, Luke doesn't stop to explain at this point, but we will uh, be served well this morning, I think, to stop and explain it. Luke will explain it, but we need to stop because this solution that is a promised child to the problems, it's the Bible's most favorite solution. Brother and sister, this morning, God's sovereignty is displayed all across Israel's history. And remember, John's history is our history. Right? And so John's parents' problem, if it's going to become our problem, let's enter into it and realize that an angel of God just showed up and said, a baby. A baby. It's one of the Bible's favorite solutions. Let me show you quickly a biblical theology of this to expand the depth of this being the right solution for Zechariah and God's people. The Abrahamic covenant is this idea that God calls a man, Abram, later Abraham, from a land of Ur, and he promises him children as numerous as the stars in the sky through Sarai, later to be named Sarah. But guess what? She was barren. And about 90 years old, when God opens her womb to give her Isaac. And it's a long story of them not trusting God, and yet God doing seemingly the impossible. You know what that sounds like? Sounds like our passage. Abraham and Sarah, same word for them, used, advanced in age. It's exactly what we get with Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. Shorter, but just as clear, that baby, Isaac, grows up, marries a woman named Rebekah, and guess what they struggle with? Barrenness. Until the Lord intervenes. Genesis 25, 21, it says, Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Sounds like our story, doesn't it? Answered prayers of barrenness. His son, Jacob, that we just talked about, 
His story is nothing but a mess of sin where he takes multiple wives and concubines all against the Lord's commands of how things are to be and tries to control the womb. But in that story, it's God over and over again closing and opening the womb, displaying his power. You know what he's doing? Preserving his promises for his purposes, even when the sinful mess of of life is surrounding it. If that weren't enough, in the time of the judges... Where by this point, now God's people have done evil in God's sight, and and He gave them into the hands of their enemies. Not only for a little bit, but for 40 years, God gives them to their enemies, the Philistines. And we learn in the book of Judges 13, 2 through 5, that there was a certain man of Zorah, and his wife, guess what, was barren. (laughs) And she had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman. Sounds like our story, doesn't it? The angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head. The child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Sounds like our passage, doesn't it? It would be normal in ancient times and John the Baptist's time to drink wine responsibly. In verse 24 in that Judges passage, we learn who we're talking about. The woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew and the Lord blessed him. You know what the Nazarite vow, the whole idea of of John now being set apart, why he's to be different? I mean, the assumption was everyone will grow up responsibly drinking wine, but set him apart. His mind will not just be sober in the responsible sense of handling this, but completely devoted. He won't even touch it. He will be so pure and clear, everyone will know this is a messenger from God, right? Prophet. And yet here we have in Judges 13, where the vow was taken the first time, God opening the womb. You keep turning the pages in scripture and you land in 1 Samuel 1. And the beautiful story of a a wife, of a man named Elkanah, and the woman's name is Hannah. And you guessed it, Hannah, the mother of uh, of the prophet Samuel, is what? She's barren. We learn in verse 6, because the Lord had closed her womb. It's the first time that this barrenness idea is directly linked to the Lord in regards to his, his, his arbitrary decisions, like as they look to us. But it's not arbitrary. The Lord closed her womb for a reason because verse 11, she would vow a vow to the Lord and say, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant. You hear that? God's people afflicted. And remember me and not forget your servant, but I will give to your servant a son. Then I will, she says, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. No razor shall touch his head. Sounds like our passage. Leaping off the page in 1 Samuel 1.20, we see, And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I asked for him from the Lord. So Samuel's name means given by God. Now, too lengthy to read today, but in the final account in 2 Kings 4.8, there's this final story about a woman who, you guessed it, is barren. She's a servant, and she serves the prophet Elisha in that story. And and he wants to bless her for her service, but she, being humble, asks for nothing more than wanting children. She's barren. 
And she says, give me children. So what does he do? He tells her, in a year's time, you will have a child. And guess what? Miraculously, God opens her womb. She has a child. But this story of barrenness is very short there because it fast forward, this, this, this baby grows up and is in the field. And he's working. So he's gotten old enough to work. And it says he gets sick. His head, he complains, oh, my head. And they take him to his father and mother's house and he dies. The promised child, God opens the womb, gives this baby in 2 Kings 4.8 to this woman who is nameless, gets sick and dies. So she goes to Elisha and she says, what are you doing? You prayed to God and I had this baby, but now he's taken from me. He's dead. And she essentially tells him, do something about that. <laughs> so he says, well, look, I'll send a servant, you know, to do this, you know, do this and God, God will take care of him. She looks at him and says, no, you come with me. So Elisha does. And then we get this strange scene in 2 Kings where he goes in where the child is and the child is dead and he puts his mouth on the child's mouth and his eyes on the child's eyes and the palms of his hands on the palms of the hands of the child and he lays on the child and he prays to God and the child is still dead and he does it again. He does it multiple times and then a miracle happens. God, through the power of Elisha and his prayers and faith, raises the boy back to life. He was dead, and now he's alive. He resurrects him in 2 Kings 4. Now, you don't know it yet in reading Luke, but you know it at least that all of the pregnancies in chapter 1 and 2, John and Jesus, represented in these accounts really show us that if John's history is our history and John's problems and his parents' problems are our problems, then the way that God's solution continues to work out over all of time is really trying to teach us something. And what's amazing about the six accounts in the Old Testament about barren women not being barren anymore, when you grab a piece of each one, you put them all together and you see Jesus like you see that God has always been preparing and making a solution to the problems his people face. It's by faith that every single one of those problems became a solution in, in God opening a womb because not because of just the miracle, because of who the miracle pointed to. It pointed to it pointed outside of itself and it said there is one coming who will render all the problems of his people, gone. And that's where we finish our sermon today. John, you know, who is he? Well, his history is our history. The problems his parents face is our problem. But his calling is our hope. That's the final point, beloved. Look at 16 and 17. It says, the angel continuing to speak about this boy says, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. And finally, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Simply beautiful verses pointing us to the reason for this season. We are not ready for the Lord as a people. Uh, we, we have never been ready. We, as historically people who believe, cannot make ourselves ready because of our brokenness, right? 
I mean, what words ring out loudest in the natural ear as you just read those verses? Hopefully it's the idea, we need to turn to the Lord. We need to turn our hearts. We have disobedience and injustice that defines us. It's the opposites of what this boy comes from. The Lord's solution for us is the calling and the message of John. And get this as well. It's a message that he himself will even need to believe. But the last prophet's message comes from the angel. John will be born, the angel says, for the purpose of preaching repentance to Israel. The message of repentance at its core is a warning to get your eyes and your hands and your thoughts, get your life off of the devices of sin that so bind you, that hurt you, that cause you to stumble, that cause you to look out over history, your current circumstances, and declare, this is not helpful or hopeful, I'm doomed. Repentance causes you to turn away from those things and to instead reach out and look up and pray to God instead and say, God, I will forsake finding my identity in that and I will have my hope in you. I pray, God, that you will change my circumstances. I love your commandments. I love your law. They're my delight. I cannot keep them. I need your help. That's where Zechariah goes when he goes into the holy place. That's where God's people pray as they go. And what does God do? He sends an angel and he sends a clear message. Keep doing that. <laughs> because the spirit of the power of Elijah is going to be upon this one. Now, Elijah actually represents in this moment all the prophets of God. In the same way that when Moses and Elijah are mentioned, they're like catch-all characters describing God's law and God's word, the prophets, right? So it's like God's law and God's future. God's law and his promises. And, and we see that this baby, John the Baptist, who is he? He's going to grow up and he's going to speak for God in the spirit of the prophets. And he's the last one. No one after him will need to speak the way he speaks because he goes to make a people prepared for the one to come for Jesus. This is the last prophet, the last Elijah, if you will. And that is good news. That's good news for Zechariah. That's good news for the people waiting. It's good news for his sweet wife, Elizabeth. It's great news for all of the Jews that are awaiting the Messiah, the true Messiah. It's great news for saints who have died in faith looking to Christ. And it's good news for us on this side of things who look back. It's good news. It's preached news. It's tidings of joy. It's hope. Who will be ready by this baby when, they, when he grows up into his ministry calling? Disobedient fathers. You know any of those? I mean, I stand one right here in front of you. Who's going to be ready for this? Is it disobedient children? You bet it is. Is it children who need their hearts turned back to their loving father? Yeah. That's who stands ready to receive the ministry of this one. Is it foolish people? Absolutely it is. Is it people who disobedient in their understanding of justice? They need to be made wise to the justice of God? Yes. That's verse 17. And God will preserve his prepared people through Jesus Christ, even though they are sinful fathers and wayward children and unjust fools. He will preserve them in Christ. And this calling of John should give us hope at this point. It's enough for you. If you know and you understand John's calling this morning, then you know the hope I speak of. 
John's calling points us to hope in the gospel fully. Who is John? Well, first of all, his history is our history, so let's step into it. His parents' problem is our problem. So let's press into it. Let's, let's think about what our solution is. But man, his calling, what he's going to stand up as one who himself needs help and believes, it's our hope. It's the hope that after him, Christ came, that Christ lived, that Christ died, that Christ lived again, that Christ reigns. We believe that and we follow. And that's what we wait for in this season of Advent. Let's pray. God, thank you for Advent. It's a man-made term, um, but we want to better understand the Bible, and so we pick terms out of the Bible to help us understand it. We may build entire seasons and silly calendars with a million themes out of it, God, but we want to be the people who can pick sense out of this tradition. Will you help us in this season? to set Christ first in our hearts. Father, we come to you now knowing that we're going to confess our sins here in a moment. They are sins about being disobedient fathers and mothers, wayward children, lovers of injustice. God, we, just like Zechariah and Elizabeth and the people waiting, we fear your presence, but we know we need it more than anything else. Their problems are, are, are significant to our problems today, God. And Lord, their history is our history, and we stand in it happily. But God, I pray that you will remind us as we sing and as we take communion that the hope of the calling of John the Baptist's life is our hope. One did come. He, did pre, uh, he was a predecessor for you, Christ. So we pray to you, and we sing to you, and we take communion in your name because your name is the hope for us in this season. And so God, help us to do that together with our friends, with our family, and help us, God, to value these days for the preciousness that they are. Lord, we look forward to your second coming. Help us to rejoice in it now. In Jesus' name, amen.